Good morning, everybody. Earlier this week, um, Tanner mentioned that 100th devotional um, to me. It reminded me of um, what a heedless congregation you are. Pay no attention. Um, I, when we first started those, I mentioned that it would go probably worldwide. And I would need a private jet to get around and see everybody. And um, so far, that's been, well, we're coming up on a year. The, the count is open, but there's only $5 in it. <laughs> um, so I don't know what to say. You're just choking off the Word of God to, you know, thousands of people, but... Okay, today, we began last Sunday, and this is the second Sunday of what is, um, by a portion of Christianity, called the Lenten um, season, which is 40-plus days of intensifying our focus on Jesus and why He came here, which was to die. We, all, we celebrate three great dates in the Christian calendar. Christmas, which is God with us, Emmanuel. Easter, which is God for us on our behalf. And then Pentecost, which is God in us, indwelling us. This period is uh, focusing on the atonement, the death of Jesus on Calvary, opening the redemption plan that God has or had been showing us through types and illustrations of the sacrificial system preparing us for the day when after 1,500 plus years of offering up animals, laying our, head, laying our hands on their heads and confessing our sins. And then it was the job of the confessor to cut the lamb's throat. Then the priest took it, burned part of it on an altar as a sacrifice to God and sprinkled a portion of that blood on the confessor, symbolizing atonement had been made for his or her sins, and you're forgiven. This was celebrated daily for over 1,500 years, so that there came a day when John the Baptist, seeing Jesus come to his baptizing, said to all of Israel, Behold, pointing to him, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. In other words, he's saying to that generation, The privilege you have 
to be born at this particular season when 1,500 years of physical object lessons finally you've been living with the shadow now the substance has arrived you've been living with the symbol the one symbolized is here all then all of recorded history biblical history has as its pinnacle Calvary there's the joy of course of Christ Jesus being born the angel said I bring you good tidings of great joy there's born unto you a Savior for the puzzled bewildered people then they had a completely wrong idea of what a savior even meant it was totally physical it was free us from trouble heartache roman occupation difficulties restore us as a sovereign nation will be wealthy will be powerful our lives will be smooth this is the kind of savior we want we've been looking for even the disciples who walked alongside Jesus for three years saw him raise the dead saw him walk on the water saw him open the eyes of the blind heard him teach and had him rebuke them fairly frequently for their dull-heartedness, lack of faith, even after three years of intimately walking with Him on the eve after the resurrection. The resurrection had occurred. They were witnesses to that. On the eve of Jesus ascending back into heaven and telling them to wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they still didn't get it. Jesus said, not many days from now, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you'll be witnesses unto me to clear to the ends of the earth. Their response to that, well, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Still didn't get it. Focused on this world missed the, all the clues that this was a spiritual kingdom Jesus was establishing, a spiritual family into which we must be born. They missed it. The danger then, the reason I want to focus on this during the Lenten season is because we miss it too. And that's not harsh. Don't mean it that way. We are so earthbound as humans. But second, we are either currently infected with sin and separated from God, in which case Jesus always described that condition as total blindness. Or 
we have yet within our hearts, even though we've come to put our faith in Jesus and receive him into our hearts as our Savior, we still have within us a nature the Bible calls carnal, and the word, the word means flesh, fleshly. It is, an, it is a spontaneous inclination to focus on the things of this world. And we miss, we're peculiarly foggy when it comes to the spiritual aspect of things, which to God is the only true existence. This world's passing away. This world doesn't, it, what we think we see, we don't see. Paul said, what we can't see, in a play on words, he said, what we can't see is what we need to be looking at. Because that's the only thing that's real. So what seems to be real isn't. The big question then, I think, and especially, I think, as Christians, many of us are, we have a fuzzy picture. Yes, um, Jesus died for our sins. That's really, um, that's about as far as it goes. Jesus died for our sins. Well, I think we have, a, we have some kind of, again, a cloudy picture of what we mean by that, but we're hard-pressed to explain it. And beyond that, we're hard-pressed to explain why God the Father had no other alternative. There had to be a cross. There had to be a death. There had to be shed blood. And this is more and more, and I think it always has been, but this is more and more to the modern, quote, Christian, an embarrassment. I've even thought old hymns talking about <clears throat> the blood. There's power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. What does the modern, quote, sophisticated person think of that? This talk about blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood shall lose their guilty stains. Do we like singing about that? I haven't heard that hymn for 30 years. Partly, partly because there is a brand, a wide brand of Christianity that we have so reformed and reshapen to make the gospel and God more palatable, more acceptable. So we talk more now. We just talk about the love of God. But a blood sacrifice, the provision of it is love, but the demand for it 
is God's holy wrath against sin. We've obliterated that from the gospel. We don't understand, then, the what kind of God we have. We don't understand His nature. And we, here's one thing that only God can help impress on our hearts. So it's not just intellectual. But we have no grasp of the, the seriousness of sin. We just plain don't. Sin will produce, you know, some kind of skin condition or something. You know, I mean, you got a rash, it'll go away after a while. You don't even have to go to the doctor because it'll clear up. And what's the effect of sin? Well, sin's, you know, it's this and that, and it kind of makes you feel kind of heavy a little bit, a little bit guilty, but you'll get over it. And we have no concept, no concept. The soul that sins, it shall die. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, in the day you eat of that tree and thus disobey me, you disobey me, you'll die. That day. What did he mean by you'll die that day? And I think I've mentioned the language says dying you will die. Because there's two kinds of death that are the result, the penalty for sin. The one is immediate. Spiritual separation from God. And we shrivel and die in our souls. And darkness descends on our heart. Our eyesight is blinded suddenly. And it happened like that. Adam Adam had just, we don't know how long they lived in the garden before sin, but Adam had such an intelligence. God brought everything he'd created, every living thing that he created, he brought it to Adam, and Adam named it. All the animals, all the species, everything. And that man and woman that God created so far above our intelligence. The moment they disobeyed God, such a spiritual darkness descended on them that they thought they could go hide in the trees and God wouldn't know where they were. There's six-year-olds smarter than that. But the problem isn't there. It's here. It's at heart darkness. I don't get it. The second kind of death is physical death. Physical death, God would have been completely in the right. For physical death also to be instantaneous. He would have been totally within his right. But it wasn't. His grace and love interceded there. And I mentioned last week, God's dilemma, if you want to use the term that God can have a dilemma, it is the thing he hates the most is sin. His only attitude toward it is thorough, utter, complete, total destruction of it. 
However, it's in us. And really, not only Adam and Eve who were then, but all of their descendants, which are us, God looked at that and said, what I hate is in the beings I love and the ones I made in my own likeness, my image, that can fellowship with them. That fellowship is broken. But I love them to the point I want to restore it, the fellowship. Does that make any sense? God then is up against something he hates beyond our ability to describe it. But he loves us. How then does he save the beings he loves? Now listen, save them by remaking them. He's never going to tolerate us walking in sin and infected with it and blighted by it and committing it. He's never going to put up with that. But just in his pure grace, and there's a theological term for it, prevenient grace, the grace that is designed to lead me to my eyes gradually opening, and I see I'm in trouble with my Maker, the great God of the universe, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, is furious with me. That's where he wants to lead me. He wants me, as A.W. Tozer said, he wants me to hear the gospel bad news before I hear the gospel good news. And the word gospel means good news. But the good news must be bad news. Bad news. Horrible news. That the one who holds my breath in his very hand is angry with me. Now that's not chipper, fun, grinny. I, I think I've mentioned this to you before, and I'll not spend too much time on it. My son, several years ago, teaching in college in Michigan, attended a church that he didn't like. <clears throat> um, flippant kind of a outfit. Large. From a conservative denomination. And Easter, the day that Jesus bore the wrath of the Father, took it on Himself, drew it into Himself, and suffered what we deserve the celebration of that, that particular Easter Sunday, was all of the skinny jean staff members up on the platform blowing up beach balls and batting them around in the congregation saying, Jesus is fun. That's the gospel we've got often today. Now, you know, there's a reason why God doesn't give to some of us the right to 
That's blasphemy. That's the, day, that's the day, yes, Jesus rose from the dead with, as he later showed his disciples, the spear wound in his side and the nail prints in his hands for my sin. Beach balls are not in the Gospels. Do you understand me? I don't ever mean... I don't ever mean to be a wet blanket. I fear sometimes I am, but I can't help it. Because actually, the deeper our distress and the deeper we recognize our just desert for what we've done to God in rejecting Him and setting our puny selves up above Him, the deeper that sense, the greater the joy and peace and blessedness and eternal happiness when we recognize what Jesus did for me and trust him and receive the benefit of his blessing. When I recognize what God saved me from and how wonderfully good he's been to me in light of what I deserve. So it, in the end, the best way and the Bible way to exalt Jesus and our great salvation is to paint, paint as black as we can and as the Bible does. The picture of our rebellion and of God's justified wrath that brings us to the atonement that brings us to the atonement God had no other choice he would have had to deny himself and his own righteousness and his own integrity if he didn't require death for rebellion in the end then what God was doing, partly doing, in the atonement, the death of Jesus, he was maintaining and establishing his own righteousness, his own integrity. He had to. Here's really what sin is. And God's integrity and righteousness is the opposite of this. He has to show what sin is. In a kind of a simplified way, sin is really, I just don't believe God means it. That's one way to look at it. He didn't mean it. He doesn't mean what he says. That's really the core, I think, first sin. Because the devil came to Eve and said, this is a wonderful tree to eat from. This is the only one God's put off limits to. You can, you can have all, but he's put this one off. How come he did that? Well, she answered, God said if we eat of that, we'll die. That wasn't the tree. It wasn't that the tree had some chemical problem that would kill him, or it had, you know, some kind of pesticide sprayed on it. That wasn't the issue at all. It was that God said don't. I mean, it could have been anything that he set up as a test. He said, don't do that. You leave that alone. 
And she said, he said, we die. We do it. We eat it. The day we eat of it, we'll die. And what was the devil's response? No, you won't. There's the toehold. That's why the core sin is really, I don't take God at his word. In other words, unbelief. Now, unbelief, people say, well, it's pride. It's um, rebellion, you know. Yeah. But unbelief spawns it. I suddenly hit on the notion, you know what? I don't think he means it. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. When he tells me don't do this, it's appealing. Ah, he didn't know what he's talking about. I can go ahead. I can embark on this course, take this path. God said it'd be end in ruin. I don't believe it. Unbelief spawns then arrogance, pride, haughtiness. I know better. And then what follows in the wake of those two? An act. I put into practice what I believe now. And that is that I can take this path. I can do this. I don't have to listen to what God is telling me to do. Because I know better. That's really what sin is. Do you see, somehow, we have to see, this is not <clears throat> some misstep. This isn't some, as far as humans go, some little, eh, you know, he kind of got off on the shoulder of the road, but he, he's a good guy. This is intelligent, willful, deliberate, knowing, Rebellion. And it takes a pipsqueak like all of us. And we set ourselves up against God <laughs> who spoke the worlds into being. Created, it says, all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He didn't have to get a massive supply of some kind of Play-Doh or something and make little stars and pour stuff on them that'll burn, light them, and just set it. And we, <laughs> we say to that God, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. And we elbow him to, the, let, me, let me show you how it's done. That's really what we're doing. Listen. I mean this, not being wild. My face isn't red. Veins aren't sticking out in my neck. A, he, a creature that does that to his creator ought to go to hell. Totally deserves it. And God has to pour wrath on that behavior and the person doing it first before he can then show the graciousness that saves me. So the cross is really God's public display of anger against sin. Now, I've got to move on here to scripture that 
I don't know how far uh, we'll get here, but somehow I really want us to get this. I want us to be, I want us to have a deeper understanding of what the atonement is, why Jesus had to go to Calvary, and the cost it was to him and to the Father for us. Romans 3 is where I'd like for you to look with me for the next couple minutes. Romans 1 is the worst list, I think, probably in the Bible <clears throat> of the degradation, the defilement of sin within the human heart and the human race. It's that long list of just scum. That is describing to the glee of the Jewish readers of Romans, it's describing, quote, the Gentiles, <clears throat> those who did not have the word of God and were not the chosen people like the people of Israel. <clears throat> and the Jews were happy to consign those scummy Gentiles, keep them away, fire hose them away. But then Paul turns his guns in chapter 2 on the Jews. And he says, you guys aren't any better. In fact, in a way, you're worse. Because you have the patriarchs. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Word of God, Moses, the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. You have all of that. And still, he said, you do the same things the Gentiles do. Not only are you no better, you're worse. Then chapter 3, having consigned everybody to judgment, he then begins to show that God has brought into the world what he so long prophesied and so long illustrated through the sacrificial system, the ultimate sacrifice, himself, his son, who clothed himself with human flesh and died in our place and on our behalf. So I don't know how much of this we'll look at, but it, you, we have to look at quite a bit of it because it's logical step by step. Three, one, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision, meaning the whole system and the scriptures or much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, the word of God. For what if some did not believe? What if some Jews didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. God forbid. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you're judged. That's a quote from Psalm 51, where David was praying for forgiveness and restoration after the grievous sin of taking Bathsheba in adultery and then arranging for her husband to be killed when he found out that she was pregnant. David's praying and he's admitting, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. 
you are justified in your wrath and judgment upon me. I'm not pleading diminished capacity or some Philadelphia lawyer kind of argument. God, you're right. I'm in your crosshairs and I deserve it. If our, five, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Now some of this is difficult to understand. But Paul is really saying, I just told you Jews that you do the same thing the Gentiles do, and in doing that you're a reproach on God and a reproach on the scripture which God gave through the nation of Israel and the speakers and the writers were people of Israel. He said, you're bringing reproach on it and then God in his kindness and goodness still preserves you and keeps you alive when you don't deserve it. And if your kindness is shown in your long-suffering, your patience to us Jews. Why not, basically, it's, it's generating good press for God about what a nice person He is by us behaving badly. Why not continue to behave badly? That was the argument they were making. Why is God upset with us? Actually, the fact that we're creeps and He's not treating us right now as creeps it makes him look good. What's his problem? That make, that's the argument. And Paul says, is he unjust when he inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Six, certainly not. For how then will God judge the world? Quickly, God's wrath, I mentioned last Sunday, the wrath of God is it always revealed to us first. When God invades our life and begins to try to draw us to Him, He does not come first. I love you so much, I'm just bawling and wringing my hands. His first approach to me is, I am furious with you. Even as a child, what's the first thing? My conscience bothers me. I did something I shouldn't have done. Now, it's love that warns us. Yes, not pitting love against God's holiness, but it's holy first. God's love is always and only qualified by His holiness. He is holy first. And so His opposition and hostility to disobedience of His law is the first thing that comes to us. My conscience bothers me. That's God saying, I don't like what you're up to. How will God judge the world? Well, that, the whole point then, and I will never make it today, <laughs> but the whole point here, what's, God's, what's God out to save us from? Judgment. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that Jesus redeemed us from what? The wrath to come. John Wesley, 
founder of the Methodists. A lot of people thought, well, that's way too rigid. No, he, he was biblical. You, and he stiff-armed people. Today, man alive. We'll take anybody, no matter what, and you can live like you want. You can keep all your bad habits. You can just be as wicked as the devil. But as long as you, A, fill a seat, which means we can count you, and two, if you write a check occasionally, <clears throat> you're in. Do that for three or four weeks, we'll put you on the board. John Wesley, you had to have a ticket signed by either him or his brother Charles to even get in to hear him preach. Because he didn't want, any, he didn't want anybody who wasn't serious. And people ask him, well, what do I have to do to be a Methodist? His constant reply was, you have to be interested in fleeing the wrath to come. That was the requirement. Flee the wrath to come. Want to be saved from certain judgment and hell. That wouldn't make it today, I don't think. Anyway. How will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, makes Him look wonderful of, for His decency and goodness and long-suffering, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they, than the Gentiles? Or not at all. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. Now here's a shorter list than Romans 1. Quoting from the scripture, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Those are three things he says. Nobody's righteous. No one gets it. No one understands. And no one seeks God. The first two are conditions that I really am born into and I can't be faulted for that. I mean, it's not my own responsibility. It's a description of the mess we're in. But what about the third one? That one's different. There's no one who seeks after God. Yes, I'm born with an inclination to sin in my heart and I'm blind. I don't get it. God temporarily overlooks that. But the fact that we won't seek God there's the blame. None, none understands, none seeks God. They've all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. 18, perfect description, I think. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the core issue. We don't fear God. We don't care what God thinks. Now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Meaning, 
you cannot, why did God give us the Ten Commandments? Why did he give us the sub-commandments that all are related to the Ten? Why did he, and then he summed it up. Love God with your whole heart, your neighbors, yourself. That's all the law, the Ten Commandments, everything. Why do you give us that? Well, to give us a rule by which we can live and walk and we need to work harder to do it. And if you're not doing it, you need to get at it. And, you know, if you're having trouble with the adultery thing, let's work on that. I've got some video series and we can kind of go through a Bible study about how you ought to work on that. And then when you're cussing up a storm and your mouth, as it says, is full of blasphemy and bitterness and well, let's work on that. I probably hear that more in all the years I've been in the ministry. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm working on it. I, you know, I'm a, such a nice human being. Most of the time, I just don't even say anything anymore. I really don't. I don't say, well, it won't do you any good. So why did God give it to us? To be cruel? To say to us, here's what I expect out of you. You'll go to hell if you don't. While he knows I can't. Can't do it. He tells us why he gave it to us. He says, no one can keep the deeds of the law and therefore present themselves to God as I've arrived. I'm keeping the, I'm keeping the law. I keep the commandments. He said, I didn't even give you the law for that reason. I gave it to you so that you would have the knowledge of sin. The giving of the law is to show me how far I fall short and frankly to make me like Paul speaks two, three chapters later when he describes the condition of the person who's trying to keep the law and can't. He said, oh, I'm wretched. <laughs> I'm a wretched person. I try, but I can't. And the reason is, he said, I want to show you how deep down and farther back the infection of sin and the inclination of sin and my heart has turned its back to God. I want you to see that. And you can't see that until you see my righteous requirements and what I expect. And I want you to try to keep it so you'll recognize you can't. Quickly, uh, really quickly. Elijah, prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel, contest. I'm going to build an altar to the Lord. You guys build an altar to Baal. We'll lay sacrifices on it. We won't light it on fire. We'll pray, and whichever God drops fire out of heaven and burns up the sacrifice, that's going to be the God we'll decide to serve. You for it? And they said, yeah, okay, we agree. What did, what did Elijah do? He gave the prophets of Baal first. They got to go first. At the flip of the coin, they went first. Why? So they could spend, as it happened, all day trying to get their fake God their way of religion, their method of getting to heaven to work. And by the end of the day, they'd cut themselves and they, was, they were dancing around and hooting and hollering. They were a sweaty, bloody, exhausted mess 
And it says there was no fire, there was no voice, there was no anybody regarded, no, no, nothing. And then Elijah, they had all day. Then Elijah said, come here to me. Repaired the altar that was broken down, which is getting back to God. And he prayed a one verse sentence or two prayer. said, God, would you show these people that you're the true God and that you want to turn their hearts back to you and redeem them to yourself? And this other way is fake. Fire fell, proof of the supernaturalness of it. It meticulously gives the order. It's a stone altar, wood, a bullock that had water poured over so there wouldn't be any magic going on. Burned up, fire came from heaven. First thing that got burned up was a sacrifice, never touched the wood. Wood didn't burn it up, God did. Burned up the sacrifice, then burned up the wood. And then, of course it quit because we're only dealing with somebody who doesn't know what he's doing. Then, no, burned up all the rocks so there weren't no more. Then he was done. No. No, he burned up, it says, all the water that was in the trench around it that they drenched it with. Then it burned up all the dirt. That's God. Why did Elijah get into that contest? And why did he let them go first? So they would see we're bankrupt. We're without hope. We don't have anything. God gave us the law. And we will not listen to him that he says, now, this is what I want to write on your heart. So you'll live that way by nature. Oh, we know better. Because remember, we don't listen to God. So what do we do? We engage in the greatest religion. You know, we say Christianity is the greatest. I think well, Islam may be next, Hinduism, but Christianity is the, the most popular nation in the whole globe. No, it's not. There's, there's another religion. It's more popular. It's called bootstrap religion. I do it myself. You know, I'll just, I'll, you know, I did shovel the old lady's sidewalk the other day. He even chipped the ice off. Tell you what, pretty good guy. You understand? We are perpetually not taking God at his word. He said, you can't keep this law. That's what I require. I want, you to, I want you to come to the place where Paul said, I'm wretched. I try so hard, but I can't. I need you, God. Then God is happy. <laughs> now we're finally at the place where he can say, listen, here's what I've done to give you a way into my peace, my approval, forgiveness. And I did that on the cross got to quit but we'll keep looking specifically what did Jesus do on the cross and why do we have to have <clears throat> why do we have to have a cross and why do a number of other slightly different theories of what he did on that cross lead to major error so there there is a right way to look at what happened on between those two thieves, what did God do? 
Let's bow our heads. I hope this is, well, just hope that it'll help our hearts and help us realize all God's done and have an understanding of then our response and how much God deserves us to walk with Him, to love Him, to trust Him. Father in heaven, as I sat and I listened this morning to the story of our Savior and the process in which you put together for us to be redeemed so long ago, the one thing that sticks out to me, Lord, is yes, you are holy and your love, but you're clear. You don't make this confusing. We go through dark times before we surrender our lives to you. And there's a reason for that. That's part of what we need to go through to come to you, to really realize, to count the cost of what it is to be a Christian, as our Savior has put before us. So, Father, as these next few weeks unfold, I just pray, Lord, that you start to reveal the clarity in which that we might understand what you've done, the extent of what you went through to redeem us back into a relationship with you should leave us stunned and just in awe of you. I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, as you teach us, that we would grab a hold of a deeper understanding. Even those of us that have been saved and have been walking with you for a long time, help us to remember, Lord, what it was when we first came to you. This process of your judgment and your wrath that was to come for us, and but yet how you revealed to us, how you want to redeem us away from that through Christ our Savior. So may we leave this place today, a group of individuals that are beginning to understand the depth of how much you love us and the extent of what you've went through to redeem us. And may that, Lord, change the way we live, not to earn anything, but to walk from this room today by your grace, bringing you glory in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys, you're dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.